How is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, under its new director, Rohit Chopra, likely to approach advertising issues in financial services? I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising, marketing, and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. After four years of relative inactivity under the prior administration, the CFPB under the Biden administration is more energized and is expected to be much more aggressive in the consumer space, especially with the newly confirmed director, Rohit Chopra. Mr. Chopra, who served three years as a Federal Trade Commissioner until earlier this month, has a reputation as a fierce consumer advocate, pushing for aggressive remedies against companies that violate the law. With Mr. Chopra's experience at the FTC, he is expected to focus on advertising and marketing activities and financial services, among other priorities. With me to discuss the Bureau's enforcement priorities affecting advertising is Brian Schneider, who recently joined Manat as a partner in the Chicago office. Brian was associate director at the CFPB, where he led the supervision, enforcement, and fair lending division for two years. Prior to the CFPB, Brian was a top official at the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, where he served as secretary and was a member of the governor's cabinet. Brian, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Paul. I'm really excited to be here, and what a great topic to be talking about. We all expected the CFPB to take a more active role under the Biden administration, and it appears that is exactly the direction that the Bureau will be taking, especially now with Rohit Chopra as its new director. What would you say, Brian, will likely be the top enforcement priorities for the Bureau? I suppose that's a question on everyone's mind. And I do think that the Bureau has been fairly clear in where it will be focusing its resources in the next, let's say, 18 to 24 months. And then also, given Mr. Chopra's indicated interests, I think we can also speculate a little bit on some additional areas that he's likely to direct resources toward. First off, the Bureau is going to be extremely focused on attempting to mitigate the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on American consumers. They've made that abundantly clear now for many months. And similarly, they will concentrate a lot of effort on increasing racial equity and inclusion across the financial services marketplace. And then finally, I think at a top level, we'd be mistaken to overlook Mr. Chopra's deep interest in the student lending market. He is very focused on making sure that student borrowers are protected, both in terms of the products that are offered to them and how servicers handle those loans once they're made. So with that in mind, then, there are some industries that I think need to be particularly well-prepared and particularly focused on their compliance activities. Mortgage servicing comes to top of mind for me. They are really at the uh, tip of the sphere in terms of helping consumers handle many of the effects of the COVID pandemic. Literally millions of borrowers went into CARES Act forbearance programs and similar voluntarily offered programs by borrowers to help them through the pandemic. And as those borrowers are now coming out of the protections of those programs, the Bureau is quite frankly insistent that servicers take care of those borrowers in an appropriate way. Fair lending issues are going to come to the top of the list for the Bureau. And fair servicing is fair lending. So if you're in the, in the mortgage space, or let's not forget about small business lending. The Bureau is, of course, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. 
but their jurisdiction under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act extends to small business lending. And the Bureau is particularly concerned that many disadvantaged groups have for literally decades been deprived of good access to the small business lending market. So you'll see, I think, a lot of focus in terms of fair lending, not only where you might traditionally think of it, auto and home, but also small business. And then how is artificial intelligence and machine learning affecting really the entirety of the financial services marketplace, but particularly lending decisions? How are AI algorithms and related machine learning working to help lenders make loan origination decisions? There's a lot of skepticism, I think, about how neutral those activities can be. And people who are using them really need to start paying attention and begin to understand them in a way that's explainable. And in the student lending space, obviously, student loan origination, making sure that it complies with all the laws and servicing is going to be top of mind. But in particular, some other interesting new products that people are trying to offer to student lenders and others, I think, are going to come into focus. We've already seen the Bureau take some action with respect to income sharing agreements, which were a way for companies to try to work with students in a new way about financing their education. They are now being scrutinized more significantly by the Bureau. So I think as these new products in the student lending space emerge, the Bureau is likely to pay careful attention to that. As an advertising attorney, I am particularly interested in the CFPB's views on advertising and marketing. You listed quite a few areas that the Bureau is anticipated to focus on under its new director, but what are some of the specific concerns relating to advertising and marketing activities in those areas? Great question, and I think it's good to explore that in terms of some specific markets. At the top level, though, I'd note not only would we expect this greater focus on advertising by the Bureau, but also by Mr. Chopra's former agency, the Federal Trade Commission. The CFPB and the FTC have cooperated well for the entirety of the Bureau's existence, but I'd only expect that cooperation to increase. So you're very likely to see the CFPB and the FTC working on the same cases involving the same entities and dividing their resources and marshalling their resources together to try to bring an even bigger stick to play in the marketplaces where they share enforcement jurisdiction. But getting down into some of those specifics, I think one way for advertisers to think about their work is, are you targeting what the Bureau would consider to be especially vulnerable populations? So, for example, maybe we consider the elderly who are frequently the target of advertising for reverse mortgages. You probably want to start out by asking yourself, are you adequately explaining in your advertising that this product is in fact a loan? Bureau research shows that often advertising misled consumers on this very central feature of the product. So, you know, really going back to that foundation of are you describing your product in a way that is not deceptive by explaining that it is actually a type of loan? Is your advertising in this marketplace complete? For example, some advertising in this area has stressed that the borrower retains title indeed to their property, but they don't say anything about the fact that ultimately there is a lien that's securing the loan. And moreover, though, advertising will suggest to the borrower that they can keep their property for the remainder of their lives, but they don't point out that they will continue to have obligations like paying property taxes, paying insurance, and maintaining the property. 
So again, for an elderly population that's looking for a particular solution to a particular financial need, is your advertising adequately complete and explained in a way that they can understand? It's not surprising that the Bureau would be concerned about advertising to the elderly. What about in the student lending space? As I mentioned before, student borrowers as a group are viewed by current agency leadership as a vulnerable population. And there are subsets of such borrowers that they would say are especially vulnerable. So for example, Mr. Chopra noted in an FTC opinion that an institution had infamously, his word, targeted service members and veterans and then focused on specific types of loans for students coming from those groups and particular types of deceptive claims targeted at those groups. So for example, the entity was falsely claiming an affiliation with the government and certain major employers. So they're trying to get the students to believe that the government or employers had either endorsed the product somehow or that there was some sort of connection that was going to make their investment in this education more valuable. And that proved to be false. So if you're going to be making those claims, let's make sure that they're true. References at times to partnerships with employers, they can be particularly troubling. That word partnership in that context can be particularly troubling. It's a legal term of art, partnership, but in an advertising context, really need to evaluate what do you mean when you suggest that there's a partnership there. And if you don't understand that, if you don't have the requisite support for making such a claim, that's going to be troubling to the Bureau. There were often just misrepresentations made about the transferability of credits that you would earn at an institution. So you're suggesting you can spend money on this education, it will transfer to many different places when in fact there was no proof that it did. And again, Mr. Chopra looked at that evidence and he found an appalling, his word again, lack of substantiation concerning future job prospects and earnings. So that really just goes centrally to the value of a student loan. Is this investment worth it? Well, if you're leading people to believe they're going to make a lot more money or get a great job, you really are going to have to have some support for that. Brian, these principles you just discussed, disclosing all of the material terms relating to the product, not making misrepresentations, and having support for all claims, they are fundamental truth in advertising principles that all of us in the advertising community are familiar with and fully support. And the FTC, as you know, has a long history and extensive body of cases and enforcement actions based on these principles. But it's my understanding that the CFPB has a broader authority to apply these principles, particularly related to the vulnerable population you discussed earlier, students and the elderly, and to seek enforcement actions against violators. Am I right? I think so. You you are correct that to some extent, the principles surrounding unfairness and deception have been well established through the work of the FTC and practitioners in that area for many decades. What the Bureau brings to bear, I think, is they do have additional authority under the abusiveness prong of their UDAP statute. And then moreover, their particular focus on financial markets and understanding how certain claims or representations that may not be troubling, quite frankly, I don't know, I specialize in this area, but perhaps a particular type of claim may not be troubling in another marketplace, but when viewed through the lens of a particular type of population seeking a particular type of financial service can be very unfair or very misleading or very deceptive. 
And I think that that's the sort of laser-like focus that you can expect the Bureau to be bringing to financial services advertising. The Bureau recently brought a case in the payday lending area. And again, payday lending is typically focused, typically advertised to subprime borrowers. And many subprime borrowers are particularly desirous of becoming non-subprime borrowers. So in a recent action, the Bureau really took aim at that. The lender, allegedly, according to the Bureau, had made certain representations about if you get loans from this lender and you perform well, you'll be able to move up a ladder and get better interest rates and larger loans. That's something that is very resonant with many subprime buyers. They're trying to improve their credit often. They're trying to earn the right to secure better products. Well, the Bureau alleges, that just simply never happened. Hundreds of thousands of people borrowed. They engaged in the incentivized activity that the lender indicated was necessary to move up the ladder and then received loans at the same interest rate, received no larger loans as it was suggested they would be able to get. In fact, oftentimes the maximum loan limit was the same at different levels of the ladder. So if you were at a lower level of the ladder at the highest loan amount and moved up to the next level, it was impossible for you to get a larger loan like the advertising suggested you would be able to get. So I think, you know, you have to make sure your practices are tracking your advertising. Are you providing what is really essential to this vulnerable population? Are you providing what you're indicating you're going to provide? And then finally, just again, to kind of look at a particular slice of advertising in the financial services marketplace, advertising can even play a role in redlining cases. Redlining, for those that don't practice regularly in this area, is understood as the refusal to extend home mortgage credit in certain neighborhoods or other defined geographic areas because of discriminatory reasons. And the Bureau recently noted that certain advertisements would discourage reasonable borrowers in certain areas from applying for a loan. So the advertising then is allegedly supporting the lender's redlining activity. Well, what sort of advertising? Well, for example, direct mail was used and all of the direct mail featured models that were non-Hispanic white individuals. And many of the mailings showed headshots of mortgage professionals that worked for the lender that was undertaking this advertising. And all of them were non-Hispanic white individuals. So repeated use, that exclusive use of white models and white professionals in your advertising then was used by the Bureau to support a contention that that lender had been redlining, had been discouraging applicants from particular neighborhoods from applying for their loans. And that, if proven, would violate the ECOA and its implementing Reg B. I find it quite interesting that when it comes to redlining cases, a company may not need to have intentionally taken discriminatory actions on the front end. The CFPB, and especially based on Mr. Chopra's position while he was at the FTC, may be looking at something much broader than that under what is known as the disparate impact theory. I'd love to hear your views on that. Well, yes, I think that it's very clear that Mr. Chopra will be looking at the so-called disparate impact theory of liability. He believes that the difficulty of uncovering direct evidence of discrimination and discriminatory intent is so difficult that the disparate impact analysis is critical, again, his word, for detecting unlawful discrimination. 
So he views this as an arrow in the Bureau's quiver. But I start by noting that it is not totally clear that the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Bureau's primary anti-discrimination tool, supports disparate impact claims. The prior administration had looked at the issue and was concerned that as a result of certain litigation at the Supreme Court, that perhaps ECOA would not support a disparate impact claim. And they demurred from additional actions using that theory for the most part. Mr. Chopra, I think we can be confident, will have no such hesitation. I think we can also, though, expect the Bureau, under Chopra's leadership, to use its UDAP authority as an alternate basis for asserting disparate impact liability in credit transactions. So UDAP could presumably augment or fill some interstices, some gaps that are perhaps in ECOA on a disparate impact theory. That is not fully, if at all, tested. But I don't think that we should be the least bit surprised that Mr. Chopra would use that. He's written on that and spoken on that theory, quite frankly. And another thing to keep in mind is as broad as ECOA is, it relates to credit transactions, which are obviously a significant portion of a consumer's financial life. But there is a lot more to a consumer's financial life than credit transactions that can't be reached by ECOA. So I think we'll see Mr. Chopra using UDAP to reach beyond that limit and assert that disparate impact in the availability or pricing of non-credit financial transactions is unfair or abusive. So there's really going to be a lot of testing of limits, testing the limits of ECOA on disparate impact, using UDAP to explore, expanding, filling in those gaps, and then expanding the Bureau's fair lending authority well beyond lending, really giving life to that notion of racial inclusion and equity throughout the financial services marketplace, not just in credit transactions, which is what typically comes to mind. Brian, going back to one of the things that you mentioned earlier about the use of artificial intelligence, I think this ties back to racial equity and inclusion as well. As AI becomes more commonplace in offering financial products, what should advertisers be concerned about in designing products that use AI? Well, it's fair to say that Mr. Schofer is skeptical of the assertion that many proponents of AI make that artificial intelligence can take human bias out of the equation in terms of making lending decisions or other financial decisions. His concern, quite frankly, which others join, is that the inherent lack of transparency in AI and the way data interacts in such situations leads to hidden bias in the results. So what I think of the interesting position is a lot of advocates of AI offer it as something that is the remedy to discrimination in financial marketplaces. And Mr. Chopra is suspect that it is potentially adding discrimination, if not perpetuating hidden biases that are always there. I think the best approach to thinking about AI is using AI that is transparent. And I think the way to think about a way, an important way to think about transparency in this context is explainability. Transparent here doesn't mean let's just sort of dump an algorithm into the public discourse. There'd be obvious concerns about the protection of intellectual property from such an action. And quite candidly, it wouldn't be very explainable to anyone. It would just be adding almost to the confusion that is inherent in some discussions about AI. But rather, can you explain the result 
and the way data is interacting in a way that is understandable to your regulator and, quite frankly, to your customers, ultimately. And I think it's also important to consider where is AI being used? Sometimes it's easy to think that, well, AI is some big algorithm and it's deployed sort of very specifically in only very specific contexts. A bank recently conducted uh, an internal audit slash survey of where did it use artificial intelligence in its decision making? And it discovered a staggering 20,000 instances where it was using artificial intelligence to make decisions in a heavily regulated space, of course. So I think another aspect of AI is to understand where it's being used so that you can then begin the process of making it transparent and making it explainable. So do you see the CFPB going back to the Obama years with steep penalties and sweeping consent orders, especially with Mr. Chopra's public positions to date? It seems that we may be seeing the same kind of hyperactive actions with steep penalties against violators, similar to what we saw during the early years of the Bureau. I think that's fair, Poe. The Bureau is typically understood as having four tools at its disposal. It supervises entities, it brings enforcement actions against entities, it writes regulations, and it engages in consumer education and information distribution. And how the Bureau balances those tools over its history and even going on into the future is something that people will watch carefully. And I think it's fair to say that under the current Bureau's leadership, enforcement is going to take probably the number one spot, that that's the number one tool that the Bureau can bring to bear in the marketplace to protect consumers. It won't be the only one. They will continue to supervise, they'll continue to write regs, and they'll continue to do consumer education. But that enforcement tool is going to be sort of a first choice in many instances. So I think you'll see a dramatic increase over time of the number of enforcement actions that are brought. They're clearly signaling that. But let's understand what that might mean. So the Bureau is only about 10 years old, just a little over 10 years old. And in the calendar year 2020, which was under the prior administration, The Bureau brought the second highest number of total enforcement actions in its history and obtained the fourth largest amount of consumer redress in its history. And current leadership has suggested that those numbers were rather anemic. So I think you're starting from kind of objectively and normatively speaking, a fairly high bar in terms of the Bureau's relatively short history that the current leadership wants to exceed and to exceed dramatically. So I think that gives you some indication of just how intense they are on increasing overall enforcement activity. And yes, I think you'll see dramatically increased penalties and significantly greater demands for what you might call robust redress. In some cases, some might say even over redress, but certainly robust redress. Mr. Schoper has written that his view is that the penalty needs to at least be as much as the financial gain from the illegal conduct itself. You'll be looking for the Bureau to demand, I think, as a condition of settlement, if a party wanted to settle, some admission of responsibility and or fault. Obviously, that's a very important decision that an entity has to make as it considers what to do. The Bureau, I think, is also going to be looking for greater and more extraordinary injunctive relief, things like caps on growth for a company that has violated the law, you could see. 
removal of officers and directors that were running the company during periods of misconduct. Things that have been more traditionally associated with prudential financial regulators, I think are going to be brought into the scope of the Bureau's remedial work. And then there's going to be, I think, a particular focus on individual liability for unlawful practices. So were the individuals that were running the company and making the decisions that implemented the unlawful activity, can they be held accountable themselves? The Bureau will be investigating that. And then, as we've suggested in other parts of our conversation, Poe, the Bureau is not going to be afraid to test the full limit of its authority, any of its authorities. What's one example of that? Well, the Bureau, during the first few months of the new administration, revoked the prior administration's policy statement on abusive practices. And well, there were arguments, of course, for and against that policy statement, but if it had been allowed to stand, it might have restricted in some ways the Bureau's ability to fully develop its abusiveness jurisdiction. And one of the first steps the Bureau took was to get rid of that policy statement, which I think is an indication of how much they're just going to keep pushing those limits. Mr. Chopra, of course, as we've discussed, was previously at the FTC. And the FTC just recently took some action under its authority concerning notices of penalty offenses which is a tool that arguably has been in the FTC's toolbox for quite some time, but hasn't been used in many, many years. And Mr. Chopra suggested in some writings that the use of that tool could be a way to respond to the Supreme Court's decision under 13B of the FTC Act that limited the commission's ability to seek redress in certain contexts. And you just saw this very quick reaction prompted by Mr. Chopra to just test, just, just go see. There's been a lot of intervening congressional action since that original authorizing legislation was passed, but that isn't going to prevent the Bureau, really under Mr. Chopra's guidance in that case, I think it's fair to say, from proceeding to explore the limits of its authority. So not only will there be novel remedial theories, but we could be looking at some novel substantive theories as well as the Bureau finds how far it can reach in the markets that are subject to its jurisdiction. Given the enormous risk, the potential for significant penalties and sweeping actions from the CFPB, I think our listeners will greatly benefit from hearing a few practice tips to avoid getting into trouble with a much more aggressive Bureau. Sure, that's uh, great. I'll try to give you a couple, three that come immediately to mind. One, I've already touched on, but I think it's a perfect practice tip because it's fairly easy to do, which is go back and think about what I keep calling your email hygiene. And associated with that could be some relevant training with your staff. Make sure they understand that words they use in emails really are permanent. They really do indicate the values of the organization for which they're working. And they need to make sure that your values of your organization flow through to your teams. And then that flows through to their internal communication as they work together and work with your customers. I also think it's important to consider your advertising in the context of specific, potentially vulnerable populations that they're aimed at. You know, alone is alone is alone, I suppose. But alone aimed at a sophisticated middle class or upper middle class mortgage borrower is going to be viewed differently by the Bureau than a comparable piece of advertising aimed at the elderly or the economically disadvantaged 
or service members. So just be aware of that. And as you're reviewing your advertising materials and related collateral, think about it through the eyes of that population, not a more generalized population that might theoretically be interested in your product. Think about who you're targeting or that. And then I think it's also necessary as you're making claims about your product and the ability of your financial services customers to take advantage of them and potentially earn better products and services, review those claims to your actual performance on an ongoing basis. And then if you have to adjust, then you have to adjust as necessary. But your kind of aspirational hopes for how customers are going to benefit over time from your services are not enough. Review what's going on in reality and make sure that your messages to your customers track that reality. Brian, I really can't thank you enough for these insights. And thank you to our listeners for joining us once again on Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manad. As we discussed in today's episode, the CFPB and other regulatory agencies have been re-energized under the Biden administration, and advertisers and financial services companies should be prepared for increased scrutiny. At Manat, we are fortunate to be able to call on colleagues like Brian, who have decades of experience and are nationally recognized for advising a wide range of financial services companies in regulatory enforcement and litigation matters. To learn more about our consumer financial services team, or to submit questions you may have about this episode, please click the link in this episode's caption. And if you enjoyed today's discussion, please subscribe to Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat to receive updates about future episodes. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. 